seated. Join me, if you would, in your Bibles, the book of Hebrews. It's good to be back. I've been gone for a few weeks now. I appreciate Ron um, filling the pulpit for us the last couple of weeks. I heard that he left me some extra minutes. I don't know if that's correct or not, but I... I was told like 20 extra minutes to, to um, fill some space that was left over. Is that true? Okay. I won't take 20 extra minutes this morning, but uh, I do appreciate Ron doing that. It's always, he's always an encouragement with his preaching and appreciate him. I'm glad to be back and uh, hopefully the Lord has something for us this morning from his word. And uh, if you want to join me, um, we'll read the uh, beginning in verse number seven of this passage, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. The Bible says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with, their, with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we, have, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that, he would not, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray together. And Father, we do thank you so much for this time that we have together today to worship you and to learn from your word. We believe that you have a truths for us this morning to guide us and direct us into a greater appreciation for who you are and, um, and what your call is for our lives, what you desire for us and how we can represent you effectively in the world that we live in. We do pray that you would give wisdom this morning, discernment and boldness. We also ask that you would give ears that will hear, that will hear from you, Lord, and, and that lives might be changed by your grace and for your glory. We give you the praise for it all. In Christ's name, amen. In this passage of scripture, we are brought to face-to-face with this idea of rest. Um, We're also, it continues into chapter number four, the the call to being a a people that are restful, a a restful type of people, the, the same type of rest that the Lord sought to establish in the life of his 
people in the Old Testament is the rest that he's seeking to establish in, in, in our world today. Um, this rest is one of the most important aspects of the Christian life because it is a reflection. Our, our rest or our restfulness is a reflection of our caretaker or our caregiver. Um, so the more restful we are as believers and as Christians, or, or maybe a better way of saying it, the less stressed out and worrisome that we are as Christians is not necessarily a reflection on how great we are, but it is more a reflection on how great our God is. Um, we read the 23rd Psalm, and it kind of gives us, a, gives us a picture of that, of somebody who is, who is resting in the sufficiency of the, of the Lord, of the, of the shepherd, the good shepherd that is caring for them and protecting them and guiding them. The rest that God calls us to, while, while it is one of the most important aspects of the Christian life, it is also one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life. I mean, even from the perspective of the Jews in the Old Testament where they walked with the Lord, the Lord was present with them in the, in the temple and in the tabernacle and, and uh, he talked with them through Moses and the prophets and spoke with them directly and, and yet they also struggled with this concept of, of living a restful life, uh, living a life that was completely uh, dependent on the sufficiency of God or the sufficiency of Christ. The rest that the Lord calls us to is based upon or built upon a trust in the fact that he is sufficient, that he is sovereign, and that he is good. The word that's used to describe here, it's used eight times in this passage of Scripture. It's only used nine times in the Bible, but eight times are used in chapter 3 and chapter number 4. This idea of rest, it means to um, put something, to, to calm something. It's used in relation to storms in the Bible, uh, where the Lord calms the storm. Um, there's a great storm, but the Lord comes out and he calms it. It's not always that the Lord calms the storm in the sense of changes our, changes our circumstances, but oftentimes what the Lord does is he calms the storm in our heart. And he, cal he calms us in the midst of the storm. He, he causes us to rest in the midst of these difficulties and trials. This rest of calming or, or being restful or making something uh, lie down, as in Psalm 23, is only challenged in the Bible in storms, difficulties, and trials. And the only time that our faith or our restfulness is challenged is in difficult times. It's never challenged in the times that are good because we naturally rest when everything is going well, right? But the difficulty is when things are not going well, are we still restful in those moments? In the same way that it's described to us in Matthew chapter number 8, when Jesus Christ is in the midst of the storm, you re will remember the story. The disciples become frantic. They believe themselves to be ready to die, and they begin to go and seek out the Savior. They go to look for Jesus for, for help in the situation. And I don't know that they were looking for him for supernatural help as much as they were just looking for physical help, as someone to help bear the load of the situation and the circumstance. And where, the, where do they find Jesus in the midst of that horrific storm that was destroying their lives? They find him sleeping in the ship, don't they? And the storm did not bother Jesus. 
And Jesus wakes, they come and they wake him up and they say, Lord, do you not, do you not care about us? We're, we're, we're going to perish. And the Lord says to them that they had little faith and he walks out and he says to the storm, peace, be still, and the storm is calmed. This is the rest that the Lord calls us to. This is the rest that is, that is a display of how amazing our God is but it's only a rest that we experience when we trust in the amazing nature of that God. We do not experience this rest if we do not believe in that we have a great God, that we have a sufficient God, that we have a significant God, that we have a sovereign God. We do not rest if we do not believe that he is all of these things. We live a life of turmoil. We live a life of worry and discouragement and, uh, and, and stress because we do not believe in something that is bigger than us and our ability to deal with circumstances and deal with situations. Jesus describes this rest in Hebrews 4. We're, we're there, if you just want to look over one page in verse number 10, he describes this rest in this way. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, the rest that the Lord refers to here, he compares it to the rest that the Lord experienced on the seventh day after creating all of all things. The Lord didn't wake up on the seventh day and, and, and begin to grind his hands and say, I wonder if all this is going to work out. He didn't wake up on the seventh day and, and was, was, was worried about everything going the way that he meant it to go. Everything was going to go the way that he meant it to go, and he rested in such a way that he was satisfied with all of these things. It, it was a, a beautiful, it was a beautiful picture of restfulness, and it was based upon his own sufficiency, his own sovereignty, his own control of all things. God has called us to this rest. God has called us to live in this rest. The author, the author of our text this morning, uh, in verses seven down to the end of the chapter and also in the chapter number four, presses this issue. He presses this issue of resting by pointing to the Hebrew people in the Old Testament in the Exodus. We can go back actually to Psalm 95 and you will see this passage of Scripture directly quoted. I mean, it comes from Psalm 95. It's quoted in Hebrews. It comes from Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, it's referring to Exodus chapter number 12 to chapter number 16 or 17. So he's describing the events that took place during the time of the children of Israel leaving Egypt. You guys are all familiar with that story, right? So let's, look at, let's think of some of the facts that go into that story. After being, set, after being in bondage to the Egyptians for 430 years, they were in captivity to them. They were in hard labor. They were abused by the Egyptians. You guys remember the story. They were made to make um, bricks without, without the materials needed to make those bricks. They were abused by the Egyptians. They were able to see the power of God and the supply of God, the sufficiency and the significance of God when he brings 10 plagues to the Egyptians. And the process of all of those 10 plagues taking place and, and really um, uh, affecting every single Egyptian that was in that season 
but yet affecting zero of the Israelites, zero of the Hebrew people. They saw the power of God to protect them in those 10 plagues while allowing those same plagues to bring destruction to those people who were of this world, those who did not trust in him. They saw the sufficiency of God in that he supplied their needs all along the way after leaving the promised land. You remember the story, or after leaving Egypt, you'll remember the story as they were leaving Egypt, the people began to give them food, began to give them things that they wouldn't naturally have given them to, to, be, to, to prepare them for the way, which was an act of God. They, they saw all of these things take place. They saw the power of God. They saw the sufficiency of God. They saw the glory of God in these events, yet they only went on to just really figuratively days after leaving this, this and going on this journey, they're immediately back to complaining and murmuring and doubting. After seeing God perform all of these wonderful miracles, they, they saw who he was, they knew who he was, they knew what he was capable of. They come to a situation where there, where there is no good water there and they begin immediately to complain. They come to the Red Sea and they begin to immediately complain. They come to another situation where there is no water and they begin to immediately complain. They no longer, they don't have enough bread or they don't have any food to eat and they begin to complain. They begin to murmur. They begin to doubt. They begin to become concerned. Even after seeing all of these things that God had done yesterday, today, they're living in doubt. They're living in concern. They're living in stress. They're living in worry. This is how we live. This is how we function. We can see God work yesterday and walk into today with as many worries and concerns and frustrations and stresses that the world has. This is what he's calling us out of. He's calling us to be set free from these worries and stresses and to walk and to live a life of, of, of rest, to live a life of confidence in who he is and what he has done and what he will continue to do. He refers back to an event, I believe it's in Exodus 17, where they come to a place where there is no water. The Lord says to them, strike the rock. Says to Moses, strike the rock and water will come out. He, he supplies them water. And it's at this point that he says to them, you're not going to enter the promised land. Because of your doubt, because of your complaining, because of your uh, worries, you are, not going to enter the pro- you are not going to enter into my rest. And you guys know the rest of the story. They come to the promised land. They send 12 spies over. Ten of them come back and say, we can't do it. Two of them say, we can. And the Lord confirms what he's already told them, and that is that you will not enter the promised land. So after being set free from Egypt, seeing all of these wonderful things that God has done, the children of Israel returned to complaining and murmuring and worrying, and because of this, they were refused to enter the promised land. The Bible also says that on many occasions throughout their, throughout their journey that they said, we just want to go back to Egypt. Matter of fact, the scripture tells us that 
their reasoning, Moses' reason, or, or God's reasoning for leading them down the path that he led them, which was the longer journey versus taking them the way of the Canaanites, which would have, or, or the, uh, another direction, I can't think of exactly where, what it was, but there was another path that would have been a, a much clearer path, but there were great wars and enemies there for the Israelites, and so God told Moses to go down a different path to protect them, and here's the reasons. He said, I don't want you to come up on these wars and then want to return back into Egypt. So now we come to Hebrews, which is about 3,000 years later from the events that took place in the Exodus. And here's what's happening. People have just come to know the Lord. They just come to know Christ. They've just been converted. They've been converted from this very strict hard labor, bondage, and abuse of legalism. The same legalism that they experienced in Egypt, the picture is, Egypt is a picture of that legalism, and now they're being set free from that legalism, but they're facing some difficulties along the way. They're facing some trials. They're facing some tribulations. And so like the Israelites in the wilderness or before the wilderness who said, let's go back into Egypt, these, these Hebrew people are saying the same thing. Let's go back into legalism. There's safety in legalism. There's security in legalism. There's comfort in legalism. Let's go back into this legalism instead of living in the freedom that the Lord has given us, instead of resting in the sufficiency of the Lord. Let's return back into this legalism. This is what the author of Hebrews is guarding them against. He's guarding them against returning back into legalism and in part forsaking, as he says here in this text, walking away from the living God for something that is not living, for something that is dead, something that is incapable or inadequate for doing what needs to be done. Because of their unwillingness to rest in the Lord, the Bible says that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years, that for the most part, they, first of all, they would all wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They would, in other words, not experience rest. And that's what he's saying. For 40 years, you will not experience rest. And then he says, for some of them, forever you will not experience rest. Because some of them, he says, you're not going to go into the promised land. For some, they would make it in. For others, they would not make it in. But for all of them, he says, you will not experience rest for 40 years. Do you know what that tells us about rest? Do you know what that tells me about rest? Is that rest is something that God gives us. And he's telling them that you will not experience rest for 40 years, and some of you will not experience rest forever. Isaiah 30 and verse 15 says, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and resting, you will be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. We see this, we see this taking place in the Exodus. We see this taking place in the Psalms. We see this taking place now. God has given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for people to rest in him for people to rest in who he is, for people to rest in his sovereignty, to rest in his sufficiency, to rest in what he has accomplished, to rest in his power and his might. But we struggle to rest 
in those things. And believers struggle to rest in those things as much as unbelievers. There's much conflict about this text in regards to which direction it points. Is it referring to believers or is it referring to unbelievers? The implication is to both. If you refuse to rest in the Lord for salvation, you will not be saved. If you refuse to rest in the Lord in sanctification, you will not be restful. The application is to both of us, to all people, have the challenge or the call to rest in the Lord. I want to look this morning at four things that will help us as we face this challenge each day to be a restful people. To be a people that don't live stressed out. Do, we, do you guys, does anybody in here live stressed out? Anybody any, have, have any worries that you're focused on today? I, I want to just give you some practical things from this passage of Scripture that I believe the Lord will help us with so that we don't end up like the children of Israel. I think there's a, there, I think there's a, a good picture of a group of people who have experienced the supernatural work of God in the Israelites in Egypt coming out of that, that could be a description of salvation, that God has set them free from this bondage and this prison that people have to sin, but that their flesh that they face immediately after this being set free begins to, begins to reveal itself again begins to show itself again. And so here you have a people that have been set free by the power of God, but immediately are right back into that realm of walking in the, of walking in the flesh, not walking in the spirit. And when they walk in the flesh, they come up on something that is somewhat troublesome to them. They come up on this difficulty and this hardship, and they've already forgotten. I mean, how... how how hard would it be to walk up to a situation where you have no water to drink, but you remember that Jesus just split the Red Sea, that Moses or God just split the Red Sea, right? It's, it seems almost impossible for them to have forgotten that already and to walk into another difficult situation and begin to murmur and complain as if the Red Sea never happened, but you know what the reality is this morning is that that's where we all live, isn't it? That's the reality for most of us, that we walk through life seeing God's miraculous hand, seeing God's amazing work, seeing God's sufficiency in every situation. But then another situation comes up and we immediately, it's almost without question, we immediately begin to do what? We immediately begin to complain. We immediately begin to worry. We immediately begin to stress out about it and not walk in the fullness of Christ, but walk in the power of the flesh. We can't fix things, but the Lord can. Let me give you some things this morning. I hope these are helpful for you. The Bible gives us some thoughts here in this passage. Just, just walk with me through it. He says in verse number um, 7, and, and just make, make a mental note, if you would. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is all about God being better than Moses, right? So, so if you take all of the situations that you experience where Moses, Moses was really the, the spokesperson for God back in the situations that we just talked about, right? So splitting the Red Sea, who, put, who stepped in, who put the rod forth? You know, Moses did, right? So 
When the, when the rock put forth water, who struck the rock with the rod? Moses did, right? Okay. Leading them out of, the, out of Egypt, who led them out of Egypt? Moses did, right? So you, you see Moses in all of those situations back there. Verses one through six of this chapter says basically, Jesus is better than Moses. Amen? Jesus is better. So in all of those situations, in all of those circumstances where we saw miraculous things and we saw Moses as an instrument, if you will, of God doing his work, the scripture is saying that Jesus is better than that. Jesus is more powerful than that. Jesus is more sufficient than that. Jesus is more capable than what you saw with the Egyptians, with the Israelites leaving Egypt. Jesus is better than Moses. That's what you see in these, um, in this, in these verses. And he says this um, in verse number uh, seven before, uh, verse number six before seven. It says, and we, uh, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. And this is a statement of fact. We are his house. We are presently God's house. That means we are his people. The care that's spoken of here that he compares back to the care that was given to the Israelites coming out of Egypt, the care that was given to them, he speaks of it in relation to us today. We are his house, but it's not Moses that's taking care of us. It's Jesus that's taking care of us. It's my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It is he who is satisfying all that we need. It is he that is the satisfier of all that we need. Now watch what he says. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. And I want just to stop there. First thought this morning is be watchful. Be watchful. The implication of this simple phrase, this simple phrase of all of this text, it it captures every piece of this text. In other words, this phrase defines the ability for the rest of the text to come true. If this phrase is not true, if you are not hearing the voice of God, if you are not seeing the presence of God, then, the, then, then you may as well just skip the rest of the text because it doesn't mean anything to you. What matters at the beginning is he captures this idea that is the most significant idea, and that is you have to hear the voice of God. You have to be able to see God and hear God before you will ever rest in him. Seeing him and hearing him is what causes us the opportunity to rest in him. Without seeing him and without hearing him, we do not have the opportunity to rest. So it is so important that we as Christians become watchful and listening to the voice of God, to the work of God, so that we have the opportunity, doesn't mean that we will, but so that we have the opportunity to rest in him. So let's look at this. Be watchful. Number one, watch and listen seriously. In this moment, it is very, very important and very, very special 
God is communicating with us. In the same way in the time of the, of the Israelites, God is coming to communicate with them again. God is sending them a deliverer. He's placed them into bondage in Egypt. And for a season, he has left them to their own devices. He's left them to their own strength to function in their own power because of their rebellious hearts. And God has put them into this bondage. Now God is coming back to them and he's going to send Moses to be a deliverer for them. He's going to work with them again to bring about this rest that would be for the future. It is important that we as Christians take the voice of God and take the presence of God or being able to see God very, very seriously. If we can't hear him and if we can't see him, then we can't rest in him. It is important that we are constantly watching to see and hear God. God speaks to us verbally through his word, through his spirit. God speaks to us physically through, in Moses' days, through events, in our day through events. God is always, God is active today. He isn't a God that is thousands of miles away or millions of miles away who doesn't care. It is important that you are watching, that you and I are watching and listening to hear and see the Lord each and every day of our lives. He's revealing himself to us so that we might know him, so that we might rest in him. When we hear the voice of God or we see the work of God, it is empowering of us to be able to rest in him. Again, the flow of the text is such that if you don't see God and you don't hear God, you do not have the ability to rest in God. We must be watchful. We must be serious about seeing God and hearing God. If you want to rest, the pursuit is not a pursuit of rest. The pursuit is a pursuit of God. It is a pursuit of seeing God and hearing God in every situation and in every circumstance that you go through in life. It is to see God in what he's doing. It is to hear God in what he's saying. We are to watch and listen seriously. Be devoted to hearing the voice of God. Be devoted to seeing the work and the will of God. It will enable us and empower us to carry out the, to live in the rest that he has provided for us. Watch and listen seriously. Number two, watch and listen daily. He says today if you hear his voice. It doesn't say yesterday if you heard his voice or tomorrow if you're going to hear his voice. He says today if you hear his voice. The emphasis is on the fact, and he, he doesn't just use that, that word today here in this verse, but he uses it three or four or even five times in our text. The idea of it is, is look for the Lord, listen for the Lord to speak to you, to communicate through you, through what he is doing actively in the world that is around you, to what he is saying to you through his word. Listen and look every single day of your life to see God. 
In the good times, look to see God. Look to see him functioning. Be a, be a thankful person. See him working in the good times so that when the, when the bad times come, when the difficult times come, you will see him in those as well. We have to be listening and we have to be watching every single day of our lives. Looking at our circumstances and our situations, looking at God's work in those circumstances and situations, in trials and tribulations when we experience deliverance and protection, provision and care. The reality of it is, is God is in some of the most simple things that we don't ever see him in. The fact that we made it to church this morning without getting in a car accident was an act of God's kindness to us. You know that? How many of you thought about that when you got here this morning? We don't think, what we're not doing is we're not looking to see God. So here the Israelites are, they've just gone through this amazing 10 plagues, they've been protected from each one of them, and they come to a, a place where there is no water, and what do they do? They complain, they didn't see God. They missed what he was doing. We must look and we must listen for God constantly. What are you doing in this situation, Lord? Difficulty or good, what are you doing in this situation? And we're to look for him every single day. Don't rest in what you saw God do yesterday and don't hope in what you think God's going to do tomorrow. See and respond to what the Lord is doing in your life now. I think sometimes we hear God's voice, we see God's actions, and we neglect and we, we push them aside and say, I'm not going to respond today, I'll respond tomorrow. Well, tomorrow those voices and those things might not be present. Watch and listen today and see God. And when you see God boldly and loudly stating how sufficient he is, in the fact that you have food in your cupboard. Did you know that food in your cupboard right now is God screaming to you that I am a sufficient supplier of your needs? Money in your bank is God saying, I am a sufficient supplier of your needs. Clothes on your back, I am a house over your head. These are God showing his sufficiency to us. The question is, is do we see it? Watch and listen to the Lord daily. Number three, in regards to be watchful, watch and listen to the Lord spiritually. Know this, that eyes to see God and ears to hear God are gifts from God. It's not something that you do naturally. It's something that he gifts you. It's the spirit of God living inside of you that enables you to see what he sees and to hear what he hears. Many times in scriptures it says, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. But those who do not have ears to hear cannot hear. So we're to be watchful every single day to see what God's doing. But in our watchfulness, we're also to be dependent on the fact that he has to enable us to see. It says at the beginning of verse number seven, therefore ask the Holy Spirit says... It's the spirit of God's job to teach. It's also the spirit of God's job to awaken us to hear. It's a 
On one end of the spectrum, we're to look and to watch and to be serious about looking and watching each day. On the other end of the spectrum, we have to be totally dependent on the Lord to open up our eyes to seeing it. So be watchful. In your life, as you walk through life, watch for what the Lord is doing. Watch for his care. Watch for his protection. Watch for his teaching. Watch for his discipline. Watch for his discipleship. Watch. He says today, if you hear his voice. So, so again, here's this phrase. So we're going to go on to the next thought. But know this. The next thought does not exist unless the first thought exists. Today, if you hear his voice, here's where things start to happen. Here's where you can start to respond. If you do not hear his voice, if you do not see his work, you cannot respond to him. So you must be watchful today to see and hear the work and the voice of God. Number two, be careful. I want to give you three things that are going to challenge your restfulness by challenging your ability to see God. Here's what he says. Do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. He goes down in verse number 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you shall be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then he goes on at the end of the chapter in verse number 18. And to whom... Did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. There are three things mentioned in this text that will, that will prevent us from seeing God and therefore prevent us from resting, okay? These three things are mentioned in such a way as to describe something that is growing inside of us. Okay, in other words, and you guys have been there, you will understand what I'm talking about. Something happens, an event happens in your life that sparks an attitude inside of you, right? And they just spark, it's just like a spark before a flame. And what, and what happens once that spark is turned into a flame is that slowly, like, like a fire, it slowly begins to build and it begins to consume you. Okay, that's what it's referring to. In each one of these three things that are, gonna, that are going to challenge your ability to see God and therefore your ability to rest, these three things are things that happen in a moment, but then they begin to grow, right? It's like bitterness. Bitterness is something that an event happens, somebody wrongs you, somebody does something to you that they shouldn't do, and you start having these feelings inside of you towards that person. Do those feelings shrink or do they grow? They grow, right? They turn into hatred. They turn into malice. They turn into a lot of really horrible things. They just started as a seed, as a spark, and they grew. These three things that, that the author of Hebrews talks about are things that start as a spark inside of you, and they begin to grow into something bigger and more significant, ultimately ending up in your inability to see God and therefore your inability to, to rest, all right? These three things very quickly. Number one, a hardened heart. A hardened heart. He says, do not harden your heart. Or 
Do not let your heart be hardened or become hardened towards things. And he, he refers specifically in this situation to moments of testing or moments of trials. So in other words, trials and tribulation comes into our life. And if we're not careful, if we're not caution, cautious, we allow those trials and tribulations to become a way in which our heart becomes hardened. It becomes hardened ultimately to seeing God. It becomes hardened to hearing God's voice. It becomes hardened to the things of God. It becomes hardened towards God. I, I've seen people before, and, and you have as well, that have gone through great difficulty, and they, they grew in their anger towards God. They grew, in this, they grew in their hardness towards God. Not only did they not want to hear the things of God, but they hated God. These things grew inside of them. The first thing that you have to guard against if you're going to be a faithful seer of God and hearer of God is you have to guard against a hardened heart. And a hardened heart is the result of difficult situations and difficult circumstances. When life is unfair to you, these are moments where your heart might become hardened. When God doesn't seem like he's in control, when good thing, when bad things happen to good people, when bad things happen to me, to you, these are moments that we begin to move into this realm if we allow a spark of frustration into our heart or a, a spark of anger towards God or a spark of anger towards the things of God or, or whatever. We, we, uh, we allow our hearts to begin to move down this road of becoming harder and harder to the things of God to a point and a place where we can no longer see or hear God, which means we can no longer rest in him. The hardened heart is the enemy of rest. It keeps us from being able to rest in the God who is sufficient, in the God who is sovereign. James 1, 2, and 4, the Bible says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness having its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, count the joy when you face difficulties and trials in life. And all God's people said, how, do we, how are we able to count it joy when we face difficulties and trials in life? There's only one way if we're able to see God in those difficulties and in those trials. If we have a, hard, if we have a hardening heart, it is less likely that when we face difficulties and trials that we will be able to see or hear God in those trials and therefore it will result in a hardened, hard, a greater, a more hardened heart. Once you start down that journey of having a hardened heart because something has happened to you that's unfair, what you will begin to see is a lot of things that are gonna happen to you that are gonna be unfair. You just start to notice them more, don't you? Why do you notice them more? Because your heart has become harder and harder and harder to the things of God. You can no longer see God, therefore you can no longer rest in him. A hardened heart is something that will keep us from seeing God, will keep us in the realm of stress, worry, and will cause us to be unrestful. 
1 Peter 1, 7 says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who of us sees trials as being more precious than gold? Why? Why can't we see trials as being more precious than gold? The issue is, is we can't see God. So here the children of Israel, they've just seen God uh, basically wipe out Egypt, right? Wipe out all the armies of Egypt. They come up where there's no water, and what do they do? Man, God, wipe them all out. He'll take care of us here. Now, what do they do? They can't see God. They have hardened hearts, and the journey just gets worse and worse to the point where God says, you will not enter my rest. Sometimes I wonder if that statement was not a prophetic statement of seeing the hardness of their heart and simply saying, you're not going to enter my rest, or whether it was a judgmental statement of God condemning them and saying, you'll not enter my rest. I think maybe both might be true. A hardened heart will keep us from seeing God and from resting in him. Number two, he goes down into verse number 12 and and so forth down there. He talks about a disappointed heart. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It carries with it the the hardened heart again, but this time the hardened heart is not based upon trials and tribulations, but the hardened heart is built around disappointment. So you walk up on the situation again and you start to feel in your stomach, man, you know something? I'm I'm kind of hungry right now, right? You know what? God isn't very caring if he lets me be hungry. What have you just started to do? You started to have a hardened heart. You started to blame God and to see God's failure in that situation based totally on your selfish desires. Oftentimes, it is our selfish desires and our selfish motivations that God does not supply that cause us to become hardened towards him. Do you think that God was going to deliver the the Israelites out of Egypt just to let them die in the wilderness? To let them die before the wilderness? The answer is no, no. So why do they come up on such a small situation and they begin to question God? Because they put their needs and their wants above their God. He says that you have become hardened by the deceitfulness of your desires, by the deceitfulness of sin. For them, for them, it was they lacked and they thought God should supply. It is a disappointment of the people. We see it all throughout the Egyptians' journeys, the fear of the Egyptians. They wanted to go back to Egypt because they feared the Egyptians. Again, wanting protection but not trusting the Lord for it. Fear of the Red Sea, hunger for food, thirst for water, fear of the Canaanites. What you see in each one of these situations is you see a personal emotion driving their feelings towards God versus truth driving their decisions towards God. It is fear, it is hunger, it is thirst, it is our flesh driving our view of God versus the truth driving our view of God. 
And disappointment will drive us to doubting God, will drive us to hardness towards God to where we can't see him and therefore we can't rest in him. How many of us the last time we had a need, a, a serious need, found, found ourselves restful? Okay, and then you don't have to raise your hand. There's probably some of you that have and some of you that have not. It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about food and water here. We're not even talking about some of the things that we worry about here in our day and age, right? The Lord rebukes them, refuses them entry into true rest or long-term rest because they complain about not having food and water. disappointment that will drive us to hardness towards God and keep us from seeing him, keep us from resting in him. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, I am very much convinced of the extraordinary deceitfulness of the heart and how exceedingly our appetite blinds our minds and brings us into entire submission. Number three, an unbelieving heart. He says at the end that they were, all of this happened because of unbelief. And really, if you package it all together, the, the greatest struggle that everybody faces is an unbelieving, is, is unbelief. It's not trusting in what God has done or, what trusting, or trusting in what God is capable of doing. The disciples were in a boat with Jesus in Mark 6, and a storm came up and or not, not in a boat with them, but he was talking to them about bread. And they were concerned because there was no bread, there was no food to eat. And the Lord says to them, do you not understand that what happened yesterday when I fed 5,000 people and 4,000 people with, with a small lunch, do you not understand that that was meant to show you something? And sometimes that's the way it is with us as well. Our unbelief is what keeps us from seeing the power of God and the work of God. Number three, be diligent. He says three things about how to deal with these, with, these, with these challenges to our being able to see God, to our being able to rest in him. He tells us three things. Number one, be resistant. He says, do not harden your hearts or do not allow your hearts to be hardened. Be resistant to a hardened heart. David gives us a great example of this in Psalm 42 where he talks to himself and he says, heart, why are you disheartened within me? Why are you disquieted within me? He talks to himself. He, he challenges himself in regards to his hardened heart. Why are you growing hard within me, soul? He's talking to himself. He says, hope in the Lord. What's he doing? He's resisting this... Um, this natural process of growing, of, growing, of growing hardened towards the Lord and what he has done and what he has promised to do and what he is currently doing. Be resistant to, be resistant to this hardened heart or this growing hardness in your heart. Be watchful for it, number two. He talks about take care in verse number 12. The idea of taking care is the idea of being watchful over this. It's, it's, to, it's to, to look for, for these things. It's not just to be watchful for God to see what he's doing or what he's saying, but also what he's implying here is be watchful for this thing, for this attitude developing within you. Be watchful for what 
for this, for this hardness to be coming out through you or to be growing in you. Be, be watchful that you, not, that you not fall prey to a hardened heart. It's interesting about this process that we just talked about a moment ago that it happens to, it happens to many people and the process of it happening is totally not noticed by them. In, in other words, you come to a point, I don't know if you guys have been like this, but you, you come to a point where you look at yourself and you're like, oh my goodness, how did I get here? Anybody ever be, how did I get here in regards to my feelings towards this person or my attitude towards this? How did I get here? And you don't even know how you got here because it's such a deception that's taking place in your heart and it's growing so, so slowly, but yet so powerfully inside of you that you can't see the process, but you will one day see the results. You guys ever give you a little illustration? When you're not around somebody for a long time, you see somebody and maybe they're a little bit heavier and then you see them again a year later and they've, they've lost a whole bunch of weight, right? You notice that, don't you? You're like, oh my goodness, you're a whole different person. They don't notice it as much because they've been along the whole journey. They've walked it every day. They've looked in the mirror and they're like, oh my goodness, I'm not losing any weight, Right? But you see it and you're like, oh my goodness, you, have, you are transformed. You're completely different. The devil works in the same way that we don't notice what he is doing until we get way down the road and we look back and we're like, oh my goodness, how did I get here? What he is saying here is be careful that that doesn't happen to you. Always be protective over your soul and what's happening in your soul and what's growing inside of you that anger or that bitterness or that frustration or that doubt or that discouragement, it's going to grow into something that you can't control. Be watchful over it. The third thing that he says in regards to being diligent when these things start challenging us is be dependent. He says this, but exhort one another every day. The idea of this word exhort means to call is to call alongside of. It's the same word that's used in John 14 through 16 to refer to the Holy Spirit. It is to call someone alongside of you. The picture is, is simple, that when you're, when you're going through these difficulties in life, oftentimes the other people can see those things growing inside of you better than you can. And definitely the Holy Spirit can see those things growing inside of you better than you can. But other people can, and they can identify those things. So when he says here that we are to exhort one another, the, the idea of it is, is we're to call one another alongside of us so that they can help us as we're going through this faith journey. If they can identify when your heart is getting harder, they can identify when you're, when you're prone to needs and wants, and you don't think that God is satisfying those needs and wants. I had a friend once say to me, I have done so much for God, but he has done so little for me. And it's just an opportunity for us to say to that person, that's not true. That's not true. But what's happened is, is they've grown blind. They've grown hardened. What do they need is they need someone to come along beside them and help them to see that is what this is. This is the 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 one who comes alongside of us to help us. Be dependent, be watchful, and be resistant to these things. People often ask, why can't I rest? 
They often worry about, um, or, or, or they, they, will, they will pursue rest and they will not realize that all of these things in the middle have what kept them from rest and they need to deal with those things to experience the rest that they can have. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Number four and the last thought this morning is be warned. Be warned. And I'm just gonna give you a few thoughts. Remember, there is no guarantee that God will continue to reveal himself to you. There is no requirement on God to continue to reveal himself to us. Don't wait for God to reveal himself to you again tomorrow. There is no requirement on him to do so. And there's no guarantee that he will do so, that he will show himself again to you tomorrow. As a matter of fact, him showing himself to you today is a grace. It is a kindness. It is something that you do not deserve. Do not Act on God's grace in such a way as to say, I'll wait for it to show up tomorrow. It may not be there tomorrow. There is no guarantee that God will continue revealing himself to you tomorrow. Number two, there is no guarantee that you will be able to see or hear him tomorrow. There's no guarantee that your heart is not at the point of hardness to where that you hear him today and it is the last opportunity that you're going to be able to hear him and respond. There's no guarantee of those things. Number three, there is no guarantee that God will offer you rest tomorrow. When God said, 40 years in the wilderness, he said to them, you will not have rest for 40 years. Could they have said, wait, Lord, wait, we want to rest. Well, the Lord said to them, you will not have rest for 40 years and some of you will never have rest. We must find what the Lord is doing and respond to what the Lord is doing now. Today is the day to respond to the Lord's work in your life. God is a God that gives second chances, but God is not the God that can be required to give second chances. If you resist the chance that God gives you today, there's no guarantee that he will give you a chance tomorrow. I wrote this statement down. If you resist God's rest, God's rest may ultimately resist you. In closing, if the Lord is speaking to your heart today, whether it be about responding to him for eternal rest and salvation, or maybe you're sitting here this morning and your life is absolutely 100% unrestful, and you know it, you live a life of worry, you live a life of stress, you live a life of complaining. If you are that person and the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart today, listen, respond to the Spirit of God working in your heart. Do not allow yourself to walk away from the preaching of God's word with a, hardened, with a greater hardened heart towards it. 
respond to it in the same way that a lost person responds to the gospel by repenting and trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for them, we respond to the preaching of God's word as believers by repenting and trusting what Jesus Christ has done for us. It is in his sufficiency, it is in his sovereignty that we as believers have hope and it is also the same hope that unbelievers have in order to be saved. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, the Bible says, do you not know that the, that the saints, um, well, that is not the verse that I wanted. I'm gonna turn there. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, we'll close with this verse. You probably have it memorized. The Bible says this. Yeah, that's not the verse I wanted either. I actually printed out the right verse. Let's see here. 2 Corinthians. All right. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Respond to him in repentance in humility, and in faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we had this morning to read and study your word. We pray that we would not be a people that have hardened their heart towards you, that we would be a softened people, we would be a a humble people, a responsive people, that we would be a restful people because we believe that you are sovereign. We believe that you are sufficient. We believe, Lord God, that you are significant. And we pray that you would plant those truths in our hearts, help us to live by them. We love you. We thank you for the work that you've done in our lives. We are unworthy of it and thankful. We pray that you would help us to recognize it and meditate on it each day. We'll give you the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen.